Stan Jacobsen joined Saxo Bank in 2000 and serves as Chief Investment Officer. As CIO, he focuses on delivering asset allocation strategies and analysis of the macroeconomic and political landscape. In this episode, we discuss the outrageous predictions Saxo has made for 2022 and we touch upon previous calls as well. We talk about inflation, energy prices, investment strategies, cryptocurrencies, the art of conversation, career advice, and so much more. Let's start the episode. Quarter is the new way of doing company research. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world straight to your pocket. Quarter's mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. Quarter is 100% free. They include companies from 15 markets today and plan to add more over time. They always prioritize requested companies which users can easily do in the app. Users can also leave reactions while listening to the conference calls to make their voice heard. So check out Quarter. Q-U-A-R-T-R. All opinions expressed by Christopher Vonheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of BIN. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Vonheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Welcome back, everyone. I'm super excited today because we have a very special guest joining the show. Stan, thank you so much for taking the time. Always a pleasure, Chris, and uh, you're doing a great job. So it's it's a great honor for me to be able to uh, participate in one of your podcasts. First question is a fairly simple one, but I want to start there. First memory of finance and was it love at first sight? (laughs) <laughs> oh my god are we going down that you know how old i am right we, we're talking about you know theoretically we need to go to the archives of the danish national history uh books to find the early 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 parts of that question no to be honest the uh, my story is pretty simple my uncle ole jacobson was and remains one of the single biggest foreign exchange tra- traders ever in the history of danish uh, banking he ran uh forest trading uh, through many years, what it was called, used to be called arbitrage at the time in the Danske Bank from the 1970s until uh, the late 1980s, uh, 90s, sorry. So uh, one day I uh, was supposed to meet my, my, my uncle uh, at his work and I walked into this massive trading floor, a little bit like the Wall Street movies, fro- phones everywhere, brokers, 50-55 taken, mine, yours, and, and all that shit. So, so I said, you know what? I was at the time about to enter university. I said, screw all this university stuff. I just want to be right here, right now. And, and since then, it's just history. Amazing. Talking about the the archives, if you look back on some of your most important decisions, let's say in your 20s or when you studied, is there anything we can highlight there that you feel set you up to give you a great platform? No, and and I I know you wanted to go this route, but I have to say I don't feel successful and I'm certainly not someone that anyone should try to copy in any shape or form. But, you know, for me, it was a random walk, as I said uh, 
to some extent I came into this business, but but maybe if I may just extend your question to say what what keeps me in the market at this high age uh, probably right. I, I think this is the most fascinating uh, game is wrong because that this, this sort of demeanors the uh, what is going on. I think this is the the most difficult exercise in the world, maybe except for predicting the weather. And and I think every time I'm just about to understand the rules of the games, they change the rules uh, on me. So something else pops up. I need to be, uh, you know, going on and researching something else. So for me, this quest for understanding, the quest for information means that if I go to the hairdresser, I read every single women's magazine. If I go to uh, my, my you know, another to, to SAS's lobby at, at, at uh, Fornibu, I, I read all the magazine. I'm always looking for that, just that one tiny bit of information that can give me the ability to understand the world better. So I, I love that. And I think, you know, I've always entirely been driven by my, my thirst for information and, and for understanding. And, and I think to that extent, I'm living up to what I try to teach my children, which is that just follow your heart. Screw, screw what dad thinks, screw what, uh, you know, your, your peer group thinks you should do. You have to do what you want to do simply because your your stamina and your CPU is much better used to something you really like. And and you know, now I'm at an age where a lot of my colleagues are starting to consider, let me put it that way, to retire. I have no concept of the idea of retiring. I'm going to be trading and analyzing till I die, uh, which hopefully is going to be far away. So I expect to be around for another 30, 35 years, uh, Chris. Even when you get grandchildren, I will still be trading uh, if, if I have anything to uh, to say in that matter. Incredible. Let's talk about uh, macro. Why are you so interested in that aspect? I mean, you're probably interested in everything related to finance, but still you like to have this overview and go from there. Can you just explain how you ended up there? Was it randomness that as well? Or is it something that you feel there is a specific reason for being so focused on that? No, so so I think that you know, like a, an operational process or education, you start in 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 preschool where you learn to interact with other children. Then you start to learn the letters. Then all of a sudden you can read. Then you finance that, and you figure out that by the time you get to seven, eighth, ninth grade, you know, I'm very good at math. I'm very good at history. I like to write. I don't like to write. So I think as as you work through life cycles, I think you're refining what you're good at. I, I, I've never had a real job. I've always been in banking. Uh, I've had the opportunity to work in, uh, in, in, in the US. I had the opportunity to use in, in, uh, in the UK to work even in Norway. I even done that. Uh, so so for, for me, it's, you're refining your skills. And ultimately, I'm not very good at anything really, except maybe for one thing. I am relatively okay to take a huge amount of information and then almost immediately know what is important relatively to what is going on in the world. So my my skill is exactly that macro overview skill, knowing that that uh, women's magazine I, I read about uh, some new behavioral science that is you know the reason why women buy X Y Z. All of a sudden, I can adapt that to you know longevity studies, which by the way have you know potential upside of twenty five percent. So that's the really to be brutally honest, and I know everyone is always trying to be you know, humble, but I'm really only good at one thing, and that is taking a huge amount of information, which is, as you defined it yourself, really about being a macro guy with a big overview. So my business today 
is to try to put probabilities on the future. Never ever trying to convince you or my clients or anyone I advise on my, what, what I think is right, but I'm always trying to say, okay, this winter, I think there is an 80% probability we have an energy crisis. Last year, the year before last, we said, you know what? Probability of green transformation becoming the major issue is large because it came immediately after me traveling around the world this time of year, three weeks globally, and everywhere I touched down, there was forest fires, there was flooding, there was some you know, nature phenomenon that dictated to me as a person, as an individual, but also as an investor, there will be ramifications, there will be consequences. And I went back straight from that trip and said, you know what, in 2021, the focus is going to be green transformation. So you know, the, your willingness to be open, your willingness to be wrong, and, and, and at all time being thirsty on, 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 on understanding things is really macro to me. But having said that, the breed of all classic macro guys like me it's a very, very small group of people today because, of course, we have been replaced by a text algorithm that analyzes whether data are good or bad. But fortunately, I think, to some extent, I think macro is coming back. I think the next 10 years in the market for you and everyone else will be the most interesting ever because we are at a place in history, at a place in terms of the uh, inequalities uh, uh, defined as a large uh, uh, spectrum is the biggest ever. And, and there will be repercussions, there will be pushbacks, there will be new initiatives being made. And, and I think at the center of this sits something which is very dear to Norway, of course, sits the energy and the energy prices and that whole conversation. Super interesting. And I think that's a perfect segue to the next uh, concept I would like to talk about. And I know you have some very good thoughts on this and a good way of explaining it. So. For people who aren't that into finance, can we explain them the concept of the physical world and the financial markets and how they play together and how we can connect the dots? Because it's quite, seems to become more complicated to understand that relationship. Yeah, because there isn't any relationship, which is really the complicated factor here is that if you go to university or you go to business school, you would expect that there is a consequence of monetary policy of issuing a, a excessive amount of debt that, that the physical world is a constraint on the real world uh, sorry on the financial world but i think the best way to explain it is that we as you rightly say let's just, just push back what what i think and what's been my driver of my research the last two years is that we are saying that the physical world is too small for the political aspiration and narrative of the policymakers. what we mean by that is that you cannot push, as you do in Norway, to drive electric vehicles and then at the same time run an ESG program on mining and fossil and metals and batteries. That, that makes zero sense. And just for the record, if I really need to upset all you Norwegians here, it makes one, no, it makes zero difference to the world whether 100% of Norwegians drive an electric vehicle or not relatively to the issue that we globally are addressing, which is CO2 emission. While you are buying more and more subsidized electric vehicles, what is happening over in China is that they consume 30%, 30% of global electricity, which they produce 70% off by using cold burning. On top of that, it's even worse in India and in Russia. So if you in Norway want to do something that changes the CO2 emission, you should invest and you should have used, and this again, I'm going after my favorite people in the world, the Norwegians here, you should use all that money to 
to to to fund and chair the biggest professorship in alternative energy, in fusion energy, in small nuclear reactors, in and to some extent, you know, the Oslo Stock Exchange, to be fair, is trying to be that intermediate function. But you you left you know 20, 30 years on the table where you could have played a major role. You might vehicles no difference to the world, maybe for your conscience and, and God, you know, Godspeed on that for the Norwegians. But but that physical world versus the practicality of what goes on needs to be respected. And it's actually one of our outrageous calls this year that we're saying there will be a rain check on the fossil energy sector. What we mean by that is that we fully buy into the concept of electric vehicles. We fully buy into the concept of renewable energy. But it is not the solution. It is part of the solution. It is not the solution. The solution is to build a tangible, implementable infrastructure rollout. And at the same time, simultaneous investing into something like the Manhattan Project equivalent of finding marginal cost of energy with a cost of zero and an emission at zero. That is what will change the world. And that disconnect is something I love as that macro guy you were asking after. I love that disconnect, not because it's an issue, but because it's solvable. It actually we only need to address the real issue, the real elephant in the room, and we can address that. But the physical world right now is that the more electric vehicles you buy, the more you are carbonized, you, you are, uh, you're metallizing the world. So basically, when you decarbonize the world, you're metallizing the world. On top of that, you create, because of ESG constraints, you create a inelasticity in supply, uh, supply from the mining and the fossil energy sector because the cost of capital is through the roof, 15, 20% if you can raise capital at all. You cannot do greenfielding, you cannot do brownfielding. And the even the board members on these fossil energy companies and the mining companies, they are livid afraid of being sued by investors, by regulators, by private citizen groups and others because they are in a polluted business. The fact is that everything you do today, Chris, everything your family do today has huge amount of electricity consumption, which by the way, doesn't come out naturally just because you switch on a, a, a switch, but actually needs to be generated in most cases by a stable flow velocity wise of a turbine that generates this energy, i.e. renewable energy is independent, uh, is, is, is not to be used in this grid net. So, so we are building out electric vehicles without having the grid network to do it. And I think famously in Norway, if you go to Hütte uh, on a weekend, you can find one one charger that is doing it fast and there's a queue of like uh, 30 kilometers to get to that one. That just, just shows you the, that shows you my physical world versus the aspiration of where we want to be. And, and I think that's been a critical way to think about the world. And it is uh, going back to the education part of these side. So what is happening right now is that these two worlds, the the political financial world, which is driven entirely by talking, is now meeting a reality of people who practically need to deliver these services. The logistic companies, the global supply chains are getting far and more, far, far more complex, which means you need more scale, you need to be in more countries, you need better computer system. So the cost of the marginal cost of operating uh, infrastructure system is getting more expensive. Meanwhile, we we keep dreaming that we can all just you know get electricity for free. So so what is happening is that the reality of the constraints in the physical world 
is now creating a bridge to the financial world. And that means, in my opinion, and only in my opinion, that that the financial world need to reprice the cost of energy, the price of uh, mining products higher and relatively reduce the price of something like platform companies and Teslas and others. You came with fire today, Stan. I love it. Um, the um, and, and I think it's spot on because we had um, we had the Hugo uh, the Stuk from Euronav on recently, and he had like he had the same same point. Like he's trying to make the company, the tanker company, green, but suddenly you can't get financing on the same level as others. So he's saying, do you think it's going to be easier for that transition or harder? Maybe that just emphasizes your point, but. Um, I thought you talked a bit about the report and we're going to talk a lot about that today, but maybe just start off with what do you think is the hardest part to predict in finance in general? Is there anything that is super complicated to predict or is it just a whole spectrum that is kind of hard to predict? Reversing the question saying what's the easiest part is predict central banks and governments. They're only always going to decrease the price of money. They are willing to live with the un, unintended consequences in terms of inequality and the likes, despite you know perfect academic evidence that it's wrong. Uh, what is very difficult to predict is energy. I, I think an energy to me is the single biggest impulse and input to, to an economic predictive model uh, because it's such a big swing factor. Most recession starts with an energy crisis. Most bust, a boom cycle starts with very low energy. Uh, and 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 I think to a large extent, energy drives the price of money, not money price of money driving energy. But of course, now as we just talked about, there's of course a feedback loop, uh, as as this gentleman was also alluding to, that the marginal cost of energy and mining is increasing because of limitation from regulative and and ESG concerns. But 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 I you know to be honest, nothing is easy to predict. I can't even predict my wife's uh, purchasing power and 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 spend. Uh, so. So I, I don't think the, the, the way to approach the predictive uh, question is to assume that you can predict anything. Uh, you can look for policy response into a context of history. And, and again, I think our game, your game, anyone who wants to be educated in this needs to think like a bookmaker. What is the probability? What's the long shot? What is the even odds of what goes on? And then you say, and, and I think Torres says this the best. He says the deals or, or, or the trade you need to do is not every single trade that you think has momentum or intrinsic value. The best trades to make is when there is a massive gap between the perception of the value and the reality of the value. So, you know, we use just now the, the, uh, the ESG uh, lobby, which is growing at 35% a year in terms of asset under management. That 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 is that doesn't ring any. I mean, that's that's a huge gap between perception and reality. There isn't something called ESG. It's it's a label. It's a very good initiative, and ultimately would be a good thing. But you you know, most companies can be E S or G. They can't be ESG, as as your your again your shipping man was was trying to indicate. Uh, so so for me, the gap between perception and reality is the trade that you need to find as a macro guy, but also as a politically and socially conscious persons. I think the biggest gap in history is the gap there is in age between you and me right now. You know, poor, the spread between poor and, and rich is closing in because of the subsidy uh, that, that we do and, 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 and the, the good work we're trying to do with the lower income brackets. But the ability of young people to catch on to the 
revenue stream that we baby boomers has been given is very limited. And that sets up immediately the 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 reason why uh, uh, blockchain and and NFTs and uh, and and of course cryptocurrency overall becomes attractive because the young people and I assume to some extent are not not giving you words in your mouth that you don't stand by but I think young people feels that this crypto blockchain space is somewhere where you can catch on to that you know wealth that we have generated for ourselves which pretty much has been driven by ever lower interest rate and lower in inflation. So so from that perspective, I, I think that's how, how the story really evolves. Super interesting. Let's just make a proper introduction to the report you just released because what I love about these types of reports, it's not so much do I think this scenario will be true, but it gives you a framework to work from. So if you clearly understand these scenarios, and I, I'm guessing a lot of people right now dealing with COVID the last years who didn't have the right insurance would have loved to have this report two years before, right? So talk a bit about why you make the report, the, yeah, do you enjoy it? What's been the most learningful about creating those types of reports that should make people think about stuff? Yes. So as I think we addressed a few times already, most thinking is linear. It's like yesterday looks a lot like what we expect tomorrow to look like. And that is fine for everyday uh, needs. But if you are a board looking 10 years into the horizon, you're a central bank looking at downside risk or systemic risk, you need to create a framework where you look at uh, events which have a small you know, five to 10%, 15% likelihood. But if they do happen, have a significant impact in terms of what happens. Uh, and that's been the basis of this report, which I initiated 20 years ago, uh, first time, first time with eight journalists in, in a restaurant, a sea restaurant, in a seafood restaurant in Copenhagen. Now it's a global entity. Today alone, I've done 10 interviews with this. I've been Bloomberg, CNBC, CNA, Singapore TV, BBC TV. All of this is now globally. Why? Why does it have an appeal? Exactly because, as you say, people are starting to understand this is not about us telling you what will happen. It's about you, us telling you this year there is a hypersonic uh, global race going on. We are telling you that it is very likely inside the next couple of years that we will be having an ability to live on average 25 years longer. We think that women will rise to the occasion and finally claim their spot in terms of not only wages, but also the the the, the amount of people in C-suites and boards. We think that the inflation in the US could go to 15%. We think that India and the GCC countries can create a new strategic alliance underneath the umbrella that uh, globalization is breaking down. So what, why are we doing this? We're doing this because this is not something people want to discuss unless you take the format out of today's world, out of today's decision and say, okay, Chris, why, why don't we have a conversation about what may not or may not happen? There has no consequences. It is just me trying to, to do the opposite of numbing your brain. I'm trying to activate your brain cells and saying, you know, tell me why I'm wrong. I mean, I'm really through this this uh, publication, we're trying to challenge people to tell us why we are wrong. And what turns out to be the case is that people get as animated and, and involved as I am right now talking to you, Chris, because it's just super interesting. It is really the most fun. I mean, if you go to a dinner table, to a dinner conversation, do you want to hang out with all your friends that all supports Trumpster FC? Or do you want to go to someone who says, listen, Trumpster is okay. It's a shitty, shitty place with a shitty stadium. 
But, you know, I really think that Stavanger, whatever they're called in Stavanger, is, is a better team. You want the conversation and you want respectfully be able to express your view. And every time I engage in these dinner conversations, client conversations, I never walk away from any meeting where I'm not one, two, three percent uh, more informed. I may not be smarter, but I'm more informed and I have a better balance in my own view of the world. That's what we're trying to achieve. Couldn't agree more. Let's just dive into one topic. The Tromsø part you agreed on, yeah? (laughs) Your research is amazing. I was like, it's the first time any guest have managed to figure that out. But uh, let's talk about inflation. Just because I saw the the president of the European Central Bank today say that we know you guys are worried about inflation, but it will decline in 2022. So it seems like the perfect quote to take the report and the comments made in the report and pair that up with Christine Lagarde's comments today. There is nowhere in the world where the gap between perception and reality is wider than with Miss Lagarde. She is by any standard deviation, the most incumbent central banker ever in history. And she runs a group of people who just across the border in Poland, Czech and in, in Hungary is seeing central banks hiking interest rate 100, 200, 300 basis point. You have a country like uh, Poland having runaway inflation, less, I mean, Poland is the second most populous country as far as I know in, in Europe. They are in total denial, so much so that one of the outrageous calls should have been that uh, uh, the East to be hikes interest rate two or three times next year. New German government comes in. They are instituting a green policy. They're closing down the Nord Stream 2. Energy prices go through the roof. ECB is forced to hike. She will be forced to hike anytime next year. And and she's just a classic example of what we should not try to achieve. I mean, I know we call the the, the viewers don't know that, but the theme right this year is revolution. And and Thomas Jefferson, the former American president, famously once said, "You need you need a revolution every 20 years to keep the government honest." I will say, "You need a revolution every five years to keep the central banks honest." They are the most incompetent bunch I've ever seen in my over 30 years. They are living at the pipe dream, despite the fact her colleagues across in the US, her colleagues in the UK, her colleagues the rest of the world now are fully submitting to the fact that we have a inflation which is sticky. What's the end, end game here? Is it impossible to predict or do you see any milestones that could happen next year? No, I mean, when you get as old as I am, you you, you tend to feel that you have, you, you, you think you are smarter in terms of the amount of information you have, but you also know you know less about what will transpire into the future because your question really raises the mathematical decision tree, right? Because it's all path dependent. So if we, so let's say just run through one or two of these paths. If I'm right about the energy crisis this year, the winter being very cold, then you have an inflation pressure that means almost, you know, by definition, they will have to hike rates. If you have a very mild winter, if you have the fact that they're similar to what's happened to coal prices in China, you're able to contain it. You have fiscal push all of a sudden being agreed. Then you have consumer spending going on. So you can see, you know, you, you can easily arrive at a conclusion but the again similar to our conversation about the green transformation how you get there is far more important for you as a trader as an investor than the end goal even if i told you right now chris what fed uh 10 year u.s interest rate was going to be at the end of 2022 it wouldn't give you any ability to actually do anything because is it 
where it is because the inflation has gone up or is because nominal growth is going up, real growth is going up, or is because the wages are going up. You don't know what the composition of the number is, despite the fact, you know, every single day people are just sitting there, you know, watching what is 10 years doing, what's the NASDAQ doing and, and the likes. So there's too much. There are too many paths that we can travel to get to that road. And that is exactly why you put probabilities to it instead. Makes sense. We need to discuss crypto a bit. But can we just start before we dive into crypto, just explain why fiat system is a belief system at the start? And Because we are, if we understand that concept, it's easier to take that concept over to crypto again. I don't think you need to do that, but I'm happy to entertain that, that question. Fiat money is basically that, you know, now, when you have a Norwegian 100 kroner note in your, your hand, you, you, you are fiat to be believed. Fiat means to be believed uh, in Latin. So to be believed that you will actually get 100 kroner worth of value from using and ha owning that, that note. What it's really built on is essentially that the Norwegian government is able to tax someone enough money to create a proceed that undermines that uh, money. But it's a fade system. I don't know, you probably know this, but it's it's not a trick question. But do you know what it says on a $1 note in the US? Something with uh, God, believe, or something religious? In God we trust, and that's all the fear you get. So I hope you are a God-fearing person. No disrespect to people who believe in God, but you really need to believe, to believe in God if you believe in 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 in, in money, uh, transaction money, physical money. You need to believe in God because the government certainly not going to be God's if if they don't want to live up to that obligation. So that's the fiat money. It's a belief system built on the fact that government ultimately can tax. Uh, people in a country to sustain the value to to a large extent of the value and the the hundred Norwegian krona note that we talk about here. Your first initial thoughts on the uh, white paper by Satoshi was it garbage? Never mind, or was it okay? This is interesting. I need to learn more. One, I don't understand what the hell this guy is on about. Uh, two, I still don't understand what the guy is talking about. Three, why is this interesting? Four. How come uh, that I don't understand this? Am I not smart enough? And then fifth, sixth, and seventh, starting to talk to people in the industry, I realized that this, and 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 to be honest, I met and and as you probably know, Chris, I'm being invited uh, on a number of occasions to talk to people in 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 as a presenter. One of my early early engage engagement with uh, people around this paper was. Uh, was a group of people who came from uh, crypto crypto group in Denmark. I never met a more odd bunch of people in my life. So the initial scare for me was that these types, not that I'm discriminated about anyone. I mean, I, I you know, think there's a good story from anyone in society, including homeless and unemployed and employed and directors. I all think they have a story to tell. But they were very much anti-democracy, anti-establishment, anti-feared, as, as you alluded to at the beginning. But then, of course, over the last maybe 17, the first peak, but now over the last two to three years, it's become far more a conversation about an asset class. What people don't realize, and I had the pleasure of interviewing actually Katie Woods, which you may know from ARG Investment, Peter Garnery, my equity analyst, and I spent an hour with her. And she made a very, very good argument on, on, on the crypto space, not on the value of it. Uh, but she said, you know, crypto 
and, and the whole new emergence of, of payment system is really based on that it's a new asset class. In the 1970s, pension funds didn't buy real estate. Uh, that was not perceived to be an asset. So in the 70s, the pension system and, and family offices introduced real estate. In the 80s, they introduced hedge funds. In the 90s, they introduced private equity. In the, uh, the 2000s, venture capital and, and, and early parts of, of uh, of, of uh, uh, the technology. And then of course, now all of a sudden it's becoming embedded as, as an asset class. And I think she's right because we are always as investors looking for instruments which have a diversification relatively to you know, risk on, risk off. And, and to that extent, I became a convertee uh, a couple of years ago. And in my own advisory uh, portfolio called the 100 year portfolio, I actually have 7% in, in crypto which is then being rebalanced every month, uh, which is the way the model works. But, but for me, it's been a very long road. And to be honest, if you wake me up at three at night, I still can't really explain to you what goes on. But I will say, if you allow me to, to dwell into one of the outrageous calls we have this year. So this year, the, the young crypto analyst I got wearing for me came up with the idea that NFT, non-fungible tokens, could create the single biggest user case for blockchain ever. I think the, the technical issue, the commercial issue with the crypto space and blockchain has been, what is the user case? I mean, it should be elections, it should be uh, internal pricing, it should be taxes, it should be a lot of things, but it's never really taking off the ground because the user cases are too small. But now comes the music industry with all the millions, if not billions of followers, and you build an NFT platform that it sits on top of a blockchain and all of a sudden you're moving not thousand or two thousand people onto a blockchain you're moving millions Katy perry is now out and moving all of her interaction with her fans onto a blockchain and if you see at the the pricing model going on in music industry 90 percent of the money is retained by spotify's and, and services like spotify and the music uh, record label companies. So the musicians wants to look for a model that gives them back the power. The, the, the fans doesn't really care whether the app is Spotify or you know through intermediation at blockchain. But the difference for the industry is that you're creating a commercially viable blockchain. And, and bottom line is that we potentially are creating through these NFTs mainly right now in art and in music. The, the user case, which is going to be the building blocks potentially for blockchain. And then all of a sudden we move from the speculative um, wishing fiat money, anti-government and everything ends to, to, to actually having something which is usable. And then ultimately, of course, we need this intersection with the fiat money to be the final leg. But if you can create the commercial case for this, I think the the asset class uh, uh, issue is already addressed. If if you're a fund manager today and you don't have exposure to to crypto, you are underperforming by definition. So if you're in a relative performance business, you're underperforming. Uh, but but now I also think there is an increased uh, probability that we see a commercialization of this sector. And having said that, I have to say that you know the rule in Saxo is that if we do write and do research on crypto, it cannot be read or issued by anyone who's over the age of 30. So I'm obviously uh, almost twice that age, so I'm disqualified for actually having an opinion on this. I totally agree. And I find it very interesting. So I just want to add to that argument because you have the same dynamics in gaming, which this famously called play to earn model. So obviously when people playing a game, 
if they can do it on a blockchain and get the rewards themselves, it seems like a better business model than that one company who creates the game get all the revenue. So I think we have the same same dynamics in gaming right now. Uh, just a final question. I mean, we have a lot of uh, young listeners who are either studying or sort of entering finance. And, and they always ask questions like, do you have advice? And I think it's very hard to give a general advice that suits everyone. But I think it's more important to have some frameworks or some some food for thought. And at least if I'm asking you the question, what would you do differently if you started your career over again? I think there's a good case to be made that doing the traditional route shouldn't be the obvious answer today, as it maybe was 20 years ago or 30 years ago, for what I know. Yeah, I think the big difference between starting out now and when I started was that if you walked into Saxo Bank or any bank, you could really decide on a number of jobs that you wanted to do. You could be a foreign exchange trader, fixed income, commodity trader. You could be a credit trader. You could be a bank manager. You could be whatever. I think in finance, at least today, it's very limited what kind of jobs we have. I have more colleagues in social media than I have in trading. We, we My group and, and trading is the smallest group yeah, we, I think we have 2,500 people in, in SAC, so less than 50 of us actually do what is, you know, used to be trading and, and, and research, right? So it's a very small group in a, in a mega, you know, exciting uh, business, but to, to which, I, to be honest, I don't understand uh, 90% of, but, but I'm trying and I, I'm pretending that I understand it. So I think it's very difficult to, to navigate and, and give advice on that. What I will say, however, and this is the way I mentor uh, young people who come to me, so they always, like you say, they come to me and say, Stein, you know, uh, I, I'm doing this and that education, this is my CV. And the first thing I do is I tear off their CV and I go like, okay, I probably should tell you that in my lifetime, I've met 100 quantum physics, uh, PhD professors, whatever, who wanted to have a finance job. But what, Christopher, makes you different with the background you have relative to everybody else? Is it real estate? Is it shipping? Whatever is it that really you know, will drive you where you will work without thinking about how many hours you work? And this sounds a very simplistic question, but it's actually a very complicated question. I have one mentee who's never, who's never came back. I mean, he never, so far at least, has not found it. But others said, you know, came back and said, you know what? I really like real estate and, and, and I'm, I'm an economist. I'm, I'm stuck in a, a nowhere position. I say, okay, so what we do right now is that you pretend you work for me and now I want you to be the leading expert in the world on REITs, which is publicly listed uh, real estate companies. So you will write a report every month where you give me your advice. You create a model that, that encapsulates the cash flow and the attractiveness of this REITs. And, you know, of course, the fast forward story here is that six months later, Nodea uh, hired him as, a, as the leading expert on uh, strategic initiatives on, on, on real estate, right? It wasn't, I didn't do anything. I just asked the question, what is your interest? What is it you're supposed to do? So, so my, 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 my pointer to everyone out there is that, you know, you know be very selective, but, but, and even though it's, it's something you don't think is going to work, you know, uh, the art world or, I mean, why shouldn't that work? But I'm just making an example here. Or, or, you know, special specialty brew beers with, with Danes likes or whatever. Go for it. Go fully for it. Because, you know, you're, you got, you're going to be 
the best in what you do. That that is always what you should try to to, to achieve. Not the best in the world, but the best that you can be in the in the version of what you do. Again, I sound like a grandfather here, but 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 it really is down to that because you're all gonna have the same CV. You're all gonna have the same you know things that you did at a business school or at university. What makes you different is how you think and how you act relatively to how you think. That that is my advice. Be honest to that process. And, and engage smart people that you like and trust to give you proper feedback and feedback, which is not based on you are a nice guy because your generation grew up with parents like me who told you, oh, Christopher, you can do whatever you want. Just trying is enough. You know, it's all fine and dandy. I mean, you're going to do well, Chris. I know that I'm, I'm behind you. You know, that's not reality. Reality is there are, you know, hundreds of millions of you out there who wants to do the same thing. So make yourself special, but only make you special through what really interests you. I think that's the perfect ending. And just a final thought to, again, add on your brilliant argument. It's just that we, we're playing in a global world today. So it's not like before, if you were like a very exciting young guy in Norway, like you, the world is ready for you. But today you can be outcompeted by anyone, right? So you better... Or oh, be- alternatively, you can compete with everybody else in the rest of the world, right? Exactly. That's the way you need to see it. But, but at the end of the day... No one gets anywhere if they're not interested. Why Why do people become good footballers? Because from the age of five, they play football every day. You know, there's nothing that that, uh, that uh, replaces the willingness to work hard every day. But work, and if you have to work every day, why not do it with something that you really find super interesting? And don't be afraid of failing. You know, that's actually, any success story is built on, on a failure early in life, basically. Perfect ending, Stan. Thank you so much for taking the time to join. It was amazing having you on. No, my pleasure. It's uh, Christopher. I, I really like to talk to, uh, to to a younger audience, not because I think I, I'm smart or anything, but just to take away some of the illusion of how difficult it is. It is not difficult. Just apply yourself and, and be a little humble and always, always try to be, you know, doing it with with some kind of irony and smile and humor because that's that makes it all livable. Hi everyone, Christopher here again. Just a few things before you leave the show. If you like this episode, it would be great if you could give it a review and also share it with your professional network. If you want to get in touch with me, Twitter is the place. Just go to at Chris Wunheim. You can also find this information in the show notes. Hope to see you tune in to the next episode and take care.